0: Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up.
1: You can't hit with your hardest like CTA or offer in the first four words, like it's not going to happen. So you have to just do something to like pattern interrupt and break them from whatever they were doing because we're interrupting their perfect day and we're being annoying asking them to spend their money or to give us their attention. The way to think of the first line is to try a million different things and to see what sticks in the first line so you can try All different ways and you can think this is the funniest most creative coolest hook ever but it actually isn't until you've proven it in the market
0: Ari I want to get started and say what makes content that converts
1: well the best type of content is the type of content that people see and they have to see it and then their brain has to have enough time to see what it is and then they have to decide to understand what it is and then only then can it convert so the best Content is the content that people will look at, see, decide to give a second of their life to, and then it will persuade them from there. But you gotta first get them to look at it. That's the gist.
0: So Ari, I wanna go get into the first thing. Ari, for everybody just did, don't know Ari. Ari is one of the best D C marketers out there. She's the VP of Growth the Charmer brand. She's launched some huge celebrity brands with celebrities, you know, like Mr. Beast, Give Beauty, um, she's not going to brag about herself, but since I'm her husband, I'm going to brag for her. But I want to go into some SMS techniques too, because I want to make this really tactical for you. So what makes a good SMS strategy that you have seen that converts into sales, Ari?
1: I think you want to be the type of brand that is fun to text, and of course, your customers aren't going to text you back, or maybe not all the time. But I don't personally want to get a manifesto when I'm texted by a brand. I don't want to be texted every single day. I don't want to be texted when I'm sleeping. I don't want to be texted really for a lot of different reasons. I only want to be texted if you have something really cool to say that will help me in some way. Maybe it's a joke. Maybe it's a product that I want to buy. Maybe it's early access. Maybe it's any of the above. But the best SMS strategy is the strategy that is like thinking about texting one person who's your end buyer and thinking about if you were them, what would you want? Because it's really generic these days out there. So if you just think about treating it like a human channel, which it is, it's literally your phone. It's very, very like one to one. That's the best strategy is to think of it like that.
0: I wanna go into because the what you said of like SMS versus email, when should some people send SMSs? When should people send emails? What is the difference between those two? And when should you plug in emails versus SMS into your strategy?
1: So you should send both and both are really important. If I could choose one, if I was a D2C brand, I would protect my SMS list above all else because it's just a bigger in your face channel and it's a bigger commitment for your customer. If they give you their phone number, then that's a really good sign that there's intent. There's something that they are expecting from you. They know that if you give them, they know that if you get the phone number, you're gonna use it. And email, it can get in the promotions tab. There's so many brands emailing every single day. So for me, it's SMS is always on channel that when I'm dropping, I expect most of my revenue to come from SMS. If the list is of equal size to email, it just converts at a higher per dollar rate. And email is always going to be there. So I like to give preferential treatment to the customers that spend the most money, which to me is my SMS list. So let's say we have a new product drop at 8am. Maybe we drop it to our SMS list at 8am. Maybe then at 10am, we drop it to the email list. Maybe then at noon, it goes out on social to anyone. But you have to give credit where credit's due. And your best customer is the customer that is the most... Loyal and who has invited you in, and that's the SMS customer. So you're going to email everyone, you're going to text everyone, but everything works so much better if you're on their phone. So that's my favorite.
0: One thing that people don't think about when they come to content that converts is dividing the list up. I think what are some strategies that you've seen? Like, should you text everybody on your list? Should you email everybody in this? Like, what is the best strategy to do that to create? To have contacts.
1: We're actually auditing a brand right now for Sharma Brands. Shameless plug. It's the best e-com, D2C, marketing consultancy in all the land. We'll launch your brand, call us. But this week we're auditing a brand and they spend a ton of time on email. They spend a ton of time focusing on that channel. And when we're looking through the past campaigns they've sent, they're sending to millions of people, but it's literally like no segmentation. I can't tell who the cohorts are. I can tell like certain specifics around like maybe this is for women, this is for men or whatever it might be. But aside from that, you can't really tell like 90 day engagers. You can't tell when people join. It's not segmented like that, which is a huge mistake because people are are at a really different point in their journey and we should treat them as such. And even when people come in under a certain offer, Let's say you came to me and you joined us on Black Friday. That was the first purchase ever. That's when we got your SMS phone number. That's when we got your email. I want to always know that you joined us like in November 2011, because I'll always know that that sub-cohort of people expected and came in under value, and that was their first experience with the brand. So you have to take it to that detail. And sometimes, yeah, you're going to send to the majority of your list, but... If someone is not interested or they haven't engaged in a long time, if you poke them, they're either not going to buy or they're going to unsubscribe. So you need to poke them only when there's the best chance that they're going to do something back with from that poke that isn't going to be negative. So you can't just poke them with like a random editorial story or with some like shameless self promotion. You have to only poke them when there's something really of high value to them. So that like bear or that customer that. Is less than enthused needs to be treated with delicate hands, and then the like happy puppy that just came in that's opening, that's clicking, that's maybe purchased in the last thirty days should be treated with different enthusiasm.
0: Ari, for everybody just who's joining the the, the live stream right now, this is my wife Ari, the best D 2 C uh, marketer I know. I know I saw Nick Charmers in here too, so I'm sorry. Yeah, Ari,
1: don't get me fired, for- Nick. Or
0: did. Uh, but also if you have any questions feel free to drop in the chat feel free to jump in the q a we want to answer any questions but i also want to go into a topic because one of the things that ari does really well is she writes engaging fun entertaining copy and then at the turn it her ads in her newsletters, her ads on her landing pages, her ads, wherever she puts it, doesn't feel like ads. So how do you do this? Like, how do you think about writing copy? How do you think about writing this engaging copy? What goes through your mind when you're doing this?
1: Well, I started first when I was just like a baby starting in e-comm. My first role was in customer support and I was in Zendesk all day long, crushing tickets for an e-commerce brand. And so I was sending like, 200 emails a day and I had to write them all I had macros but I would personalize everything and whenever I started to write back then I was always super concerned that my tone would be not the way I had intended and especially for like a customer that's coming in hot or maybe we shipped them the wrong thing or maybe they wanted a gluten-free box but we accidentally sent them vegan or something terrible that could have like been a really bad situation If I'm writing them back and it's printed in writing, I have to be like super careful that I don't say something that's bad. And so I started, and this is the most annoying thing about me, is I started to like whisper to myself as I was typing. I'd be like, hi, thank you so much for writing in. I hope you're having the best day. And I would like, as I was typing, speak it. And I think it really helped me to understand when I was being, um, when I was coming off in the way that I wanted and when I wasn't. And it helps you catch it before someone then gets to react. So that was like my first experience with like, this is copy that I'm intending to do this with. I hope it comes off that way. And so I need to hear it and speak it. And since then, like, it's not even something I can unfortunately turn off. Like if I'm texting you, I'm going to be like, hey, Daniel, what's for dinner? Like, it's really, really annoying. but It's helped me to, I think, write like a person, which is really the whole goal of copywriting in general, is it's a person's writing to a person, hoping that person likes what they've seen, and then will take the action that the first person wanted. And you can't really get that second person, the person that's your end consumer, to do anything if they don't even understand what you're saying or if you're coming off in a way that doesn't speak to them or if you're just boring. And I don't want to be boring and I don't like to read boring things. And when I read something that is is long-winded or that doesn't use like punctuation in the way that I would. I love an emoji. Whatever it is, I want to test anything, but you have to write like a person and you have to be fun or it's just going to fall flat. And there's just so much marketing in everyone's face every single day that it's like your eyes will blaze over if you don't bring your personality. And I think that starts with writing like you talk.
0: It's funny because... I've worked next to Ari, we met at work and she actually, when she's writing copy is speaking out loud while she's writing it. She's making sure it sounds like, like she would talk. And I think that is such a, one way I've done it in the past is I would dictate things on my phone and then to see what it sounds like. So when you're writing good copy, whether it's newsletter copy or, Ad copy or SMS copy, make sure. Like, would you say this to a friend or not? Obviously, the first line of copy, and we could talk about this too, Ari, is the first line of copy is the most important line of copy. It's the one that helps people read it, the copy, read the, the rest of the thing. The first, like, there's a saying from Joseph Sugarman, first line, second line, which means that, like, the first line has to be so good that it gets to the second line. The second line needs to get, be so good so it goes to the third line. So what makes a good headline? What makes a good first line of copy? How do you grab someone's attention with copy?
1: That's such a good question. And you can't get them to do anything because you can't hit with your hardest like CTA or offer in the first four words. Like it's not gonna happen. So you have to just do something to like pattern interrupt and break them from whatever they were doing because we we're interrupting their perfect day and we are being annoying asking them to spend their money or to give us their attention. The way to think of the first line is to try a million different things and to see what sticks in the first line. So you can try all different ways and you can think this is the funniest, most creative, coolest hook ever, but it actually isn't until you've proven it in the market. And so the best way to write the first line is to write a bunch of different first lines write a bunch of different second lines and so on and to see how people engage and to see how each of these pieces do in the real world world and in the ether. And then I, I saw a question in the comments where how do you convince to like break from brand voice or how do you as like a marketer who might have their own like unique tone if you work for a big corporate brand, how do you sort of humanize that experience and how do you like use that to your advantage versus sticking to brand guidelines and I'm a growth marketer so I am very 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 passionate that if it's direct response and if it's something we need for conversion brand guidelines are suggestions and we obviously aren't going to go rogue and say something ridiculous but we should try to speak in the way we think will work best And we need to have the room to go there. And if it doesn't land and if it doesn't convert, then the brand team can take that and run with it. And then now we know we're not allowed to write like that or it didn't work or we shouldn't try it that exact way. But you have to go for it. And you have to be at an organization that lets you go for it. Because if you write in a sterile way or even worse, if you write with like a bunch of big words that are hard to understand, unless you're given the opportunity to mix it up, you're never going to like luck into a better hook or into a better way of doing it. So I think you just yeah. have to fight for
0: that. Yeah. One thing that Gretchen said on LinkedIn, which is, which is a good, great point is like copy should be written different and for different channels. Every channel has the same as a different language. Yes, you should be writing like how you talk, but really you should be trying to get in the voice of like how a customer talks in their everyday live. So that that's why like the most important when you start writing copy is understand your buyers and understand the language on each platform. What works on TikTok might not work on Twitter. What works on Twitter might not work on Instagram. So you have to make sure you're deeply consuming those channels. And also one thing to think about is also format. Like format is also two things you got to think about is format and the type of copy. Does the format work for that platform or not? All right. do you have any tips of like, so the way you write on text messages, versus email versus ads, what are the differences that you do that with those?
1: It totally depends on the brand and on the product. But for email, you can use so many more images versus, I don't think of email as a way to just get a bunch more words in. People also hate to read, even if you use small words. So Reformation is a great example of an email brand to look up to because they lead with the assets and with the products. And the copy is minimal, but it's like super... Like You couldn't have found a better word for each of the seven words they've used. And that, I think, is the whole point of copywriting. So it's not about me taking my voice and putting it into Reformation. It's me figuring out what the Reformation customer wants to hear, but mostly also what they want to see. And then on SMS... It's how can we get them to take the click? That's the whole goal. We don't need them to sit and like stay a while. We just need them to feel curious to go click. And so we're going to say a few things, maybe drive with an asset, whatever the offer is, but we have to just spark their curiosity and get them to go explore. So it really depends on the channel, but I think you just gotta like always remember that Less is normally more.
0: One thing that someone said in the chat was write like how you talk. Sometimes how you talk is um-like, stuff like that. So when people say write like you talk doesn't mean exactly you just write and then it's it's published. Like the, What Ari, what you have to do is create an ugly first draft. You have to put something on paper and then edit it down to sound better. But after you've wrote it and edited it down then you can start speaking out and making sure in your head, does this sound like something I would say or not, or what something my buyer would say or not. So when we say write like you talk, it just means that when you're reading it aloud, would you say that or not?
1: For my newsletter, I try to make it really funny. I try to make it really upbeat as we talk about some pretty tactical, sometimes dry pieces of the whole like, go to market puzzle. But for me, even as the person that's writing it, I like can't sit down to write my own newsletter unless I'm in like a certain mood. Like uh, if I'm not feeling like happy or if I'm feeling tired or if I'm feeling rushed, I don't even sit down to write it because that's how I know it will come off even if I try to like snap into it. So I think it's writing like you talk, but also writing in the way you know is the best way. So like, I'm not going to set myself up to write like a thousand word newsletter if I don't think I can write in a way that would be my best version of myself talking. So even if I have a deadline, maybe I'll do like a stream of consciousness where I try my hardest to get into that mode. But then I won't like to your point, you know, I'll come back and I'll edit it or I'll read it six times out loud and I'll just try to find some pep or try to find like something that you can pick apart and the best way to make your copy better is to attack it and to look at it with fresh eyes and to also like give it to other people to read before it ever goes to the client, before it ever goes to your boss, before it ever goes to your customer and see like how they feel about it. Because if it's boring to read or if it's not hitting or if your customer if your your client isn't gonna smile at it, if your customer isn't going to take an action. You'll know that if your coworker isn't enthused. And so you really have to gut check what you think is great. Because sometimes I think I'm funny and Daniel doesn't think I'm very funny. And that's great to know. Even though he's wrong, it's really good to know. Because at least before I've deployed it to the 12,000 people that are reading, at least I know that yeah, this is like a lukewarm joke. And maybe I'll still send it because maybe I trust my gut and maybe my reader smarter. I tried to link It didn't work. Um, but I definitely know that I'm not going to just like feel perfect about sending it. And maybe I will decide to take that back until we do it until I can put it in front of someone else who smiles at it. Or sometimes it's not about like getting a giggle. Sometimes it's, would you buy this? Or do you understand what this product is? If I show you an ad for a product you don't know, tell me what it is. And if you can show that to your dad or to whoever is around you, and if they can understand, then you're on the right track.
0: One thing I saw in the comments is something about how to reach, if you have a younger demographic and you also want to bring in an older demographic or writing copy, one suggestion I have, and I'll piggyback on Ari too, is like, if you write as simple as possible and you're writing that a fifth grade level or lower, everybody should understand that. So if your copy is not, can't reach multiple demos, that, usually is that it's not simple enough and you need it and you don't understand it enough. So you need to go back to the, the board and simplify it. Sometimes I will say there's nuances on this, meaning like some generations, there are different slings. So if you want to specifically target a generation, you have to use the, the way that they talk in their everyday language. But I think if you write it simple enough, that it's, that everybody could understand it, then you can reach more people with your copy uh, A
1: good way to gauge that, at least for me, is I'm a really bad speller. Like I call myself typo girly. I have typos all day long. And if I'm trying to copyright something that is supposed to be world facing, so client facing, customer facing, even like an important internal comms, if I can't spell the word with like super confidence that I spelled it correctly, I'm going to replace it for a word that I know how to spell. And I know how to spell like I can get up like people don't know from a 20 person random email that I can't spell that well. So I'm going to try to spell a word that's really complicated that I'm not sure that I have to spell check. It's a really good sign that I should find a simpler, easier word because maybe the person who's reading it on the other end, maybe they can't read that word perfectly. So I think it's a really good check to just like never take this in a fancy way and to always just write for clarity and to not confuse them because when you confuse them, you lose them. I say that seven times a day, but it's a good reminder that you like can't get too jiggy with it.
0: One thing that I think Sharma Brand's team and Ari and one thing that I, I've learned from Nick as well is that one thing to do is let your customer write your copy. And what I mean by that is taking words that they use in reviews, taking words that they use uh, online, taking words that they use in everyday language. If you see a repeatable thing, sometimes the best copy is really written for you because your customer has written it for you. So what are some things that you do to like bring in the words of your customer into your copy?
1: It's the whole base because if we have a, Like a gen z facing brand and we aren't sure if we're copywriting email for them or if we're not sure like i'm definitely a millennial and i'm not that with it and so we will go into the tiktoks that the brand posts or even tiktoks of normal everyday customers who are just showing like hey i made this cake with the product or whatever the product might be and we see how they write their caption and we see how the people that are responding on the Instagram post from the brand account are writing, if they write you, Y O U, if they write it with like a lowercase, just a U, all of those like small details that aren't native to us can be studied. So we can lay down that we know this should be a text that has around 40 words and that is following all these principles. But if we get the semantics of it wrong and if we don't do that research, it's going to feel like Ari Murray wrote it on behalf of the brand and she's not like the end customer. But it really just depends on finding the voice of the brand and that voice comes from the customer. And same for the reviews you pick out to hard code into your website. If the brand is the type of brand that the customer is using like dot, dot, dots, lowercase use, they don't like to sentence case, why would you choose your review that doesn't follow in that tone or in that like native language to the brand. So you just got to always find your core voice. And then as the brand changes, so let's say in a year, people stop thinking the word cool is cool or that subset of customers doesn't use it. And if we hear that, or if even in our everyday lives, if like my young cousin mentions that to me, then we might like go back and rewrite our welcome series. If to check, we don't have that word or, check our website copy. So it's always changing and the customer is changing. And so if you don't read what they're saying or even speak to them or see how they email you in when they're mad or whatever it could be, you're not going to be able to keep up.
0: One thing about B2B copy, it's, you're still writing to a human being and every copy is just supposed to like think about the pain point of the customer. So I still think about when I'm writing B2B copy that I, to write exactly how I would write any copy. The only thing different is the pain that they're experienced. But if you just connect it to a basic human level pain, everybody has a basic human level pain that they want to fit in. They want to get promoted. They want to do this. So you just have to figure out the, the pain. But B2B copy does not have to be different than B2C copy.
1: The B2B companies that kill, that people die for, they take a – page out of the D2C book. So like when Slack is pushing their next dev update and they don't have any in their app and they write the little love note to their customer instead of nothing, that is worth more to Slack than any feature update, than any piece of press, because they've now made the B2B marketers and the B2B end users that are using their product happy and to giggle and they've screenshotted it or they have liked a meme that featured it. And then they've made people who already liked their core product and their core competency, they've made those people feel like, oh wow, Slack sees me and understands who I am behind the tool, even though we're working with each other on like a business to business level. And same for Gong, there's so many, the D 2 c darlings, there's a B2B version of all of those darlings and they're all the brands that take it to the most human level.
0: One thing I'm gonna show at this stage a question is How do you decide on subject lines for emails?
1: You don't decide, you test into it. And so you should always have at least a split test running per campaign. So you should try two different subject lines. And then you should also see what's working in market. And there's also tools you can use. There's subjectline.com, which is a free generator that they'll check and grade your subject line based off of all of their data. I think they've done like 30 million. Of these free tests, so there's like best practices, and then you also just have to try a bunch of random things and see what you're seeing. Because if a big brand, let's say Patagonia, sends me an email and the subject line catches my eye, there's a really good chance that Patagonia has tested into that subject line and it's working well for them, or that at least format of the subject line if they use the same sort of template. And so if I'm selling to an eco-friendly customer, if it's an eco-friendly brand then like, I would take a page out of their book and test that. But you have to test into it.
0: A couple of things that I think about, short and simple is always great. But th- this is this the part where you need to spend one of the most amount of time because if your email does not open, it's not going to get read. So it has to be either eye-catching, create urgency, connect to ask a question, make somebody intrigued and peak to do that. And then the next part I would think is like, how does that, the first line that subject line fill into the pretext and then does, how does the free pretext fill into the first line of the email? So the way I think about it is shorter, the better, either pose a question, either say something that is insightful or give half a detail to somebody. But also what I said is test, test, test. You never know what's going to work. Some of my subject lines that I'm like, oh, this is going to get open right now. It doesn't work. And some like that, I was like, oh, this is so simple. Like, but it actually opened. So I think the best thing is to do is, um, is
1: test. When I first started sending my newsletter, I tried to be, I think, too cute with it. And then I would see Daniel's open rates and I'm like, I've made a fatal error. And then he had one email that opened in like an incredible way. It had like six words in the subject line. It ended with a question and I literally took a screenshot and then I like went into a, a Google doc and they started to write like 10 subject lines that followed the same format, the same punctuation, the same, even like maybe like the first word or whatever. And then I sent my own version and mine opened more than 10s.
0: One question I saw is, Do should we use emojis? Um, from what I've tested, actually, emojis have done better for some. But, and again, it's a testing game. I think if the emoji makes sense for the, that subject line, do it. If not, it doesn't. But one thing that we've been doing with my newsletter, for example, is like have a consistent emoji. So like every time that email is being sent, they know it's coming from the Mark and Millennials of Daniel Murray's been sending it. So emojis actually is a great way to like stand out in the inbox, but it's not something that everybody should be using or shouldn't be using. What's your thoughts? For
1: mine, I don't see like a correlation of the emoji helping my newsletter. So I normally forego it, even though for Daniels, he always uses that like fire flame that worked tremendously for him. But for me, the emoji doesn't work. And so I will try it in my pretext. I'll try it maybe as like, you know, not the first character in my subject line, at least for right now, but I'm not going to never do it. I'm going to try different emojis. I'm going to try in like a month. So you just got to like keep it rocking and you can't like rely on data. That's too old. So you have to keep trying again.
0: Do emojis make you less legit? To answer that question is, I think it, all, it always depends on, like, who the end buyer is. So I'm not going to say, like, in every... But I think in everyday chat with people, people use emojis. Emojis is, like, the, the talk of the internet. So using emoji is a great way to... Because people are, use that to display emotion now in text. And one thing that email and all this stuff is hard to do is, like, show facial cues and emotion... Word show emotion, but that's the most, you did. but like a emoji could show like facial expressions or how you actually feeling inside in a deeper way. So that's why I think, yes, for some audiences, it's a great thing to use. Some audiences it might look like you're coming off a little cheesy, but that's why testing's great. So you don't do, if it's not working anymore, just stop doing it. But always like run a split test to test if it works. Are there ideal days and times that people still reference when sending out content via email or social media? I
1: don't like a Monday morning launch for D2C, even if maybe your open rate doesn't suffer. I just, for us as like a D2C agency and what I've seen for my whole career, it's a really busy time. And so it depends on what the end goal of that email is. If it's a brand story, then, okay, you can try any day of the week, but if it's a hard launch email that we need to drive like significant revenue and this is our shot, then there's best practice days. And for D2C, at least in our test, it's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are great launch days. Friday is actually a great open day, but it's a little scary if you don't have your devs online. So we don't do that. And then the products and ship till the next week. It's a whole bag of worms, but. I think you should just also think about where your customer is and if you're an international brand or if you're a B2B brand that has users all over the world, you should send local time at whatever time you're targeting. And you should also split test into what time of day and what types of emails should be sent at times of day, days of the week, et cetera. So there's no best practice except for that one example, at least that I really follow. And I also think a Monday morning lunch is just really stressful as the person who has to launch it because all weekend
0: you feel sick so there's lots of different yeah. my rule at least for email is that having a person or like the sender is more important than the time like people will open emails if they know it's from someone sometimes like the, the subject time doesn't matter i mean Ari is a good example. Nick's a great example of email. If Nick sent an email, it's going to come. Nick Sharma sends an email. People are going to open it because it's coming from Nick Sharma. So that's why, like, one tip for B2B brands is like use a personality in your company, send it from someone inside your company. Don't send it from the company. People will open it because it feels like more personal to do that. And then in days and times, it's like sending. I think for social media, what I see that performs better. just from what I've tested is earlier mornings or like later at nights when people are using the platform. But I've also seen posts go off on other time periods, but I think at the end of the day, good content rises to the top on social media or content that is that the platform loves rises to the top. And some people might think that some might be fluffy or some might be this, but if people are liking it and it's working, then the platform likes it. So the best copy normally rises to the top and the best the best people who understand the platform rises to the top. Um, and, and a note any-
1: on the character. So sometimes for B2B or for G 2 C, you might not have a person who fits perfectly with your brand that should be the sender. But Feastables, which is a brand that we've worked with in the past, it's Mr. Beast brand and they're incredible and their CX is next to none. Like you should just stalk their channels, stalk their email list, stalk how they behave. But they are called Feastables. They have a chat widget on their site that is for customer service and it's the Feastie bot. So they've created this little monster character named Feastie and his little face is there to help you versus like, you know, someone's headshot or just worse, like a brand logo. And it's this little character who has its own personality and who engages with the customers. And sometimes CC will send texts. Sometimes CC can be on the Twitter TL. It doesn't matter because they've like identified and adopted this character that fits their brand. And for B2B like Swugo has a giraffe. So there's so many different things you can do to humanize and to like put that person, even if it's not a person.
0: If you could only connect with your audience on one platform, which would you choose?
1: If you can consider email a platform, I would rather have someone's email than have them follow me on social because that's a list that can survive a channel switch. Let's say you were a huge MySpace brand or you were a MySpace person and then MySpace dies. Like, what happens to those people? So, I would pick someone whose data I can move. But in terms of like a one to one relationship, I also love email because you would think that if you email Daniel Murray when he knew- Sends his email from the Marketing Millennials. It has over fifty thousand readers. And when he asks the question at the end, he's gonna respond to you like personally, and he's going to like have that one-to-one direct relationship. And for me, like I've made friends, like actual people I consider my good friends, um, from people who have responded to my email that I've like started to. Then we follow each other on Twitter and then on social. Maybe like next time I'm in Canada, maybe I'll go see them. So it's really like you can start a relationship on one channel and take it to the next, but. What would you say um, to
0: the social guy? My answer is like wherever, and this is my cop-out answer, but wherever my audience is hanging out the most on. And right now I'm seeing that on LinkedIn and, and Twitter. But to Ari's point is like for a social platform, those would probably be the two as of right now. But after that, like yes, I do agree. You bring them on to a more intimate platform like a newsletter or a podcast. But that that's one thing. The next question I see is what's your strategy to stand out in an oversaturated market. You could go first with me, but I think for me, I think it's just being different. I think different stands out. So the one thing that you could do to stand out is the most creative win. So if you can, if your brand allows it to be a little bit more risky or try things and take inspiration from other industries and stuff like that and bring it over, that's how you stand out is you have to do something different. And then the other thing I would say is, give value to your audience. If you become like the best known for an X topic and you continue to grow, that's why I'm so big on media and creating a media arm for a brand is because that helps you stand out because you're the one who is offering the most amount of information. But Ari, I would love to hear your opinion on here.
1: No, I think standing out is the only way. And I think that's what Daniel did on LinkedIn, which is LinkedIn was like a serious social media channel. And there were, meme pages and fun accounts, other places on the internet, but you couldn't really be your real self on LinkedIn. And Daniel like growth hacked his way into a format that really worked and that people would see. And then you can diversify your content once you've been able to like stand out. But I actually see a question that I really like that I want to pick. So is it possible to do campaigns effectively with a team of two people or do you need a larger team? And I would say people are always shocked at how small Farmer Brands is from like a manpower perspective. So we do a ton and we send a ton of campaigns through and we have a few clients that are doing something really intricate every single day that we manage. And for us, it's almost a blessing that we're so small because we're able to forego a lot of the formalities that content and campaigns can go through Legal seven edit rounds, a brand marketing team that is stuck in their ways from three generations, or whatever it could be. There's almost like a beauty to being small, and there's also a way to templatize your workflow so that you at least know okay, I want to send two emails a week, six texts. And maybe they're not all as fancy or perfect or intricate as Patagonia's or whoever you might look up to, but. I bet you can do stuff that they're not allowed to do because you guys, between the two of you can decide this is what we're going to go for. So I would rather work on a tight small marketing team every single day of the week because you can just move faster. And my brother-in-law actually is the perfect example. He's an engineer, which is so different, but he's wicked smart. And when he was out of school, he was interviewing at Facebook. and His whole job would have been to be like partially responsible for part of the like button on one page of the Facebook like experience. That's like their whole experience, their whole 365 days a year is dedicated to something so specific. And when your team is small, you can see a lot and do a lot. And it helps you to like come at a fresh perspective to each of the channels.
0: One question I see here is how do you tailor content for different stages of the buyer journey? And I think this is a great question. And I think one thing that I think about is, is mapping out what level of intent is it at each page of the that plays and what questions would be asked at every stage and then answer the questions that would be asked. So in the top of the funnel, it's like more, they're getting introduced to your brand. So it's more educating on the pain points you solve, the why. The second is more like, okay, now like, I said, like, I know a little bit about your product, like, let's do educate a little bit about, like, the ingredients or, like, the features and stuff. And then the last part is, like, answering, like, any objection questions that someone would ask. So I think it's, like, mapping out what pain points at each, and what are, like, the objections of each part of the funnel, and then writing content to each one of those objections. But for you to see, how would you do that, Ari? I
1: think it's just about keeping track of your cohorts. And obviously people are at different stages, but as a brand, we also have maybe two product launches this month or Q4 that is a very aggressive goal. So I think you have to respect where they are and hit with education, but you also need to like not forsake the current state of now because let's say someone subscribed for Mad Happy because they see a sweatshirt they really love. They would rather their next email from you be... The sweatshirt than you telling me like the story of x or y so sometimes there's like higher intent if someone's brand new and you can treat them as such where you should have seen that they forked over their info that they're ready to go and they actually might be more willing than someone who's been there forever and you can educate them later but you don't need to spend seven emails over seven days you get all the info because if you're doing your job right they'll be with you for a long time and there's time for it so you have to keep track of your list and you have to know when people came in, but sometimes you do send to the majority.
0: One more question. Cause I, I know it's one of our favorite person, Carly. What are some of your favorite brands that are doing content
1: well right now? So Taka is my favorite brand. I talk about it every single day. It's this canned coffee brand and the way that they Handle their homepage, the way they handle their emails, the way they handle social is like so funny to me. And it's probably not for everyone, but I think they merge the line of they're funny, but in a really concise way where you could look at it and be like, that's clever versus that's like this long-winded joke. So, take is the best. I love, love, love to watch We Were What, like Danielle Bernstein's brand. I know people hate her. But she's genius at her drop strategy and she shares so much of her life online that you can really have her sell in between those moments because people are just watching her every move. And I think that she's a really good founder example for D2C brands and just for marketing in general of access and how the more you see someone, if every seven times you see them is on that seven times the time they're trying to sell you something feel so much better than if they only pop their head up to like take your money. So I'd say those are some good ones. And then Patagonia forever.
0: I'll give some B2B examples. I think Gong did a very good job of personal brains and writing content on LinkedIn and showing data bit back content for B2B. I think that's a great example. I think Spark Tours doing well with valuable content with Amanda Natividad there. Some other ones that I'm thinking about, that are have done mark one of my good friends when he was at dooley, he really separated himself by doing a hot sauce sales show so like if you go back and watch like the, what he did there that is a great example of that but i know we're coming up with the time ari so any last words you want to part with and where could people find you also just want to say i'm, I'm repping ari's brand go to millions so go subscribe to a newsletter I stole her sweatshirt just with this um, and it's a cute bear. It kind of looks like me. So I I, I love it as well. So go subscribe to her newsletter, go to millions, but any last words you have for the audience?
1: I just want to thank everyone. This is very fun. Everyone knows I was a little scared because when you go live, what if you drop your ring? What if my ring, right? I kicked it over. So many things could happen. So just thanks for being here. Love you guys to pieces. If you want to support me, you could follow the marketing millennials. You could have Sharma Brands launch your company. You could read Go to Millions, which is my newsletter. Yeah, there's so much to do. But let us know how I can ever help you. And I you know. Yeah. How can we help you? How are you? Yeah,
0: I mean, you can find me on this page. You can find, could read the Market Millennials newsletter. But I also want to make sure that next week we are having a a, a session with Justin Welsh. So. Same time next week on LinkedIn Live, Justin Bosch is going to be here to talk about content systems. So I'm super excited. Thank you so much for everybody for joining. Thank you to my amazing wife um, for doing that. It's a, a great for me to have a marketing powerhouse as a, a wife and that I get to bounce things off of all the time. So thank you so much.
1: Thanks, guys. And Justin is a genius. So you have to come. Bye, everyone. Have the best day ever. See ya.
0: Thanks so much for listening.